Exodus 17, beginning in verse 8, up to the end of chapter 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men, and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him, and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the, the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people will cert with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now, obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws, and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. 
If you do this, God will direct you, you will be able to endure, and all the people will go home to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Two ways to destroy any organization are by attacking it from without with sufficient force to take it down, or by dissensions and divisions from within, which eat its soul out from the middle of it and destroy it from within. So there are external threats to any organization, and there are internal threats to any organization. Up to this point, the threats that Israel has faced coming out of Egypt are principally external threats. Uh, They had, of course, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and then in the desert, they had the, the threats of starving to death or uh, being thirsty to death. They lacked food and bread, as we saw last week. And now, in this text, they face another external threat. It's not an inanimate threat or a lack. It is an animate threat. It's, it's people, again, that are after them. And then they have an eternal problem. They have a threat from within, the dissensions from within, and, and how to handle those dissensions from Within And so as we look at these, these threats to Israel, as you know, we are always trying to treat the Old Testament as part of the Bible. That is to say that it's not standalone, but it is the Old Testament in preparation for the New Testament. Sometimes that's easy, like last week. We looked at manna, and Jesus said, I'm the bread from heaven. And so he makes the connection for us. Or we looked at God providing water. And we learn that Jesus is the one, he says it very explicitly, that he's the one that gives living water. And we we found the rock that was split open and gave water to the people. And we find Paul saying, the rock was Christ, the, the one who gives living water. And so sometimes there are these connections that the New Testament makes very explicitly. But in these stories that we have today, we need to do a little more work and we need to exercise some caution as we try to connect these stories to the fulfillment that we have in the New Testament. But I think we're able to do that with suggestions from the New Testament. So first of all, we look at the the outside threat. And the outside threat comes from a group called Amalek, Amalek or the Amalekites. There isn't a lot of information in the Bible about the Amalekites. They're mentioned a couple times in Genesis. Uh, It's kind of hard to put these together. There was a group called the Amalekites in Abraham's day, Uh, in Genesis 14.7, but then a couple generations later, there was a tribal leader descended from Esau named Amalek. And so it's it's not clear how these are related to each other because one during Abraham's day and then a descendant of Esau uh, is also called Amalek. And it's not clear exactly where these Amalekites came from, uh, from which of these these sources, or maybe there's some way to put those together. But what we have here is that these Amalekites... Um, the one thing we do know about them is they tended to to uh, live south of the Promised Land, so south of the Promised Land and into the Sinai Peninsula. And it looks like they were 
they were now about to bump up against this, this great nation that was coming out of Egypt and, of course, fighting for precious resources. And that's what they did. They came out and they fought Israel at Rephidim. In Rephidim, in Deuteronomy, we learn that their manner of fighting was to pick off the stragglers from behind. And so they didn't tend to, to do a frontal assault, but they, they tended to pick off the weak and the stragglers from behind. And so here it just says that they came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And so we have this first battle that the people are going to face coming out of Egypt. If you go back to chapter 13, we find that God explicitly led them away from battle when they first came out of Egypt. In chapter 13, verse 17, Pharaoh let the people go. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. And so God led them away from war, but now war had come to them, and it was inevitable that they do something about it. So we meet for the first time here a man named Joshua. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament's history, we know that Joshua was the the assistant to Moses, and he became the successor to Moses. And here we meet him for the first time, and he is in the capacity of a general. And so Moses gives him instructions. And the instructions were, Joshua, you go lead the people, you lead the man, you lead the army, and I will go up on the hill, and I will have the staff of God in my hand. His brother Aaron accompanied him, and we also have a man named Hur who accompanied him. This man, Hur, H-U-R, uh, he shows up later as, as a judge in Israel. We don't know much about him, but he appears for the first time here. And this battle is interesting in verses 11 and 12. It's a back-and-forth battle. It's not a one-sided battle. It's back and forth. The, the Israelites are winning, and then the Amalekites are winning, and it corresponds to Moses lifting up his hand or hands and lowering his hand or hands. And uh, when his hands were lifted up, then Israel prevailed. When his hand was down, then the Amalekites prevailed. Now, the significance of Moses' lifted hands was that the staff of God was in his hands. What staff? Well, we've seen this staff many times, haven't we? This is the staff that God gave Moses to perform miracles. And what were these miracles? These were miracles of what? Of judgment. They were miracles of judgment. This is the staff that he used to strike the Nile. Uh, this is the staff that he, he that became a serpent. And, and th this was the staff of, of judgment on the Egyptians. And we find this throughout the plague narrative of this staff of judgment. This is the staff we saw last week that struck the rock on which God was standing and the water came out and, and fed the people, nourished the people or, or uh, satisfied their, their thirst. So um, there have been a number, a number of different speculations about this. Some have said, well, this was magic or, or this was a, a, a psychological stimulus to the people. When he'd raise up his hand, they'd get, they'd get excited like people do at football games and they'd, they'd try harder or this was a signal to advance and all sorts of speculations. But the real, the real meaning that we have is that God is continuing to use the same instrument that he's used all through the story up to this point. He is using this staff to bring two things, victory to his people and judgment on the enemies of his people. So this is not a, a new thing. We ought not to look for some sort of hidden meaning here. Now, what happened, though, after this battle, which Israel won, since that battle, 
the Amalekites don't go away. In fact, if you keep reading through the Old Testament, keep your ears open, uh, your eyes open for the Amalekites because they keep showing up and they keep being a thorn in Israel's side. They keep being a problem for the Israelites. In fact, they become implacable enemies of the Israelites and they fight several times over the next centuries until eventually Israel prevailed over them completely. Now we have we have the intimation of that in verse 14. Uh, it says in verse 13, Joshua overwhelmed, it doesn't say annihilated, but overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. And then we realize this is going to be ongoing. The Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book recited in the years of Joshua. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And he eventually does that. But it's not until much later, the time of the kings. And then Moses built an altar. Uh, well, actually, verse 16, it says, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And that's exactly what happened. So this was a this was a winning battle, but it was an ongoing war with Amalek. And uh, at the end of this battle, there is a commemorative altar that Moses built. And the name of the altar, it's not an altar of sacrifice. It's an altar of memorial. And the name of the altar is the Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. And this, the idea is the standard of war. The Lord is the one under whom we march. We rally around the Lord. We march at the Lord's orders. And that's, that's the significance of the staff. It's the Lord who wins the battles for Israel. And then verse 16, the first part of it is, is very hard, not only to translate, but to interpret saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. And you'll see a footnote there, throne. If you change one letter, it could be banner. But if you leave it as it is, which is, is generally preferable not to be changing letters in the in the Hebrew text, uh, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. But is this is this hand hanging on to the throne of the Lord or is this the hand of Amalek that's that's against the throne of the Lord? It's not exactly very clear uh, how to how to interpret that. And so interpreters have had a field day, as you can imagine, uh, with the different things re referring to magic, swearing of an oath, psychological encouragement, battlefield signaling. One common Christian interpretation of the raised hands is is the prayer to God. Um, some have, have used this as a justification for holy war or just war, etc. So we need to tread carefully with all these different interpretations. But uh, But we're on safe ground if we focus on the altar, the need to rally around the Lord, the need to march under the orders of the Lord, his explicit orders. And we also need to read this in the context of the entirety of Scripture. Because if we ask ourselves, are the Lord's people in a battle currently? The answer is yes. But we also need to ask ourselves, has the, the nature of that battle, has it been transformed since the coming of Jesus? And the answer to that is yes as well. We already read Ephesians 6, a couple verses, but let me read a little more. We read about Ephesians 6, verse 10, Finally be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And here's the, the similarity is, we are in a battle as well. The difference is this, verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood 
but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, that was the battle back then as well. Do you remember the gods of Egypt? There was a a battle raging in the heavenly places, and and Yahweh was being victorious over those, those, those foes. But at the same time, on the ground, the boots on the ground, there was also a physical battle between God's people and the enemies. And that's what's changed here. Yes, the battle is still raging in the heavenly places, but we don't conduct the battle here in the same way. We are not taking up the sword against our enemies and the enemies of God. It's a spiritual battle. And another difference is this. Because it's a spiritual battle, one of the greatest weapons that Christians have for winning this battle, is not killing, but dying. Not killing, but dying. When you go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, we find about God's people. We find a war in heaven, verse 7. Now, a war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and there is this cosmic battle going on. But you see that the people of God are not inert they're engaged in this battle as well and and here are their instruments verse 11 and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb the blood of jesus and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even to death you see they conquered by the death of jesus and they conquered also by their own deaths and Christians have not always understood this. If you, if you read church history, you will find sometimes Christians taking up the sword against their enemies. And when you find Christians taking up the sword to kill their enemies for the sake of the gospel, they're confessing that they don't understand the gospel. Because the gospel is about Jesus Christ who conquered by doing what? Not by killing, but by dying and rising from the dead. And so Christians don't conquer by killing. Christians read church history. Christians conquer by dying for the sake of the gospel. And that's not just in church history. That's today. We have brothers and sisters around the globe today who are maintaining their testimony, the word of their testimony, the blood of the Lamb, and they don't love their lives even unto Death. Now, this is far removed from our situation at this current time. Maybe someday it will be our situation here in this part of the world, but, but many brothers and sisters around the world, when Christians are killed by their enemies for the sake of the gospel, they're following Christ's example, and they're demonstrating the gospel even as they lay down their lives for their enemies, as Christ laid down his life for his enemies to make us his friends. That's the first incident we have here. That's how the external threat was dealt with in in the days of Moses. There was an actual battle and God gave them the victory. And then we have something of a, an interlude here in chapter 18. It's a family reunion scene, which is, is nestled between the two problems, the two threats, the external threat and the internal threat. And in the middle, we have this pretty kind of delightful, delightful reunion scene. And what we learn here 
is that Moses had sent his family away at some point. We don't know when that was. But here we realize that Moses, he had taken Zipporah and at least one son to Egypt. And uh, at some point he'd sent them back. We can understand why uh, with his, his job in Egypt. It would have been inconvenient and dangerous to have his family there. He sent them back. And here Moses' father-in-law was bringing them back to him along with his two sons. And we, we learn about not only the first son, Gershom, but we learn about Eliezer. And here, the, the author, Moses, explains to us the meaning of their names. And if you think about the meaning of their two, the two sons' names, it sums up Moses' life, doesn't it? The first one is named Gershom, which sounds like the word sojourner. I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and that sounds something like a complaint of hardship. I, I'm always an outsider, God. I'm always an outsider. I was an outsider in Egypt. I'm an outsider in Midian. And I'm oftentimes an outsider with my own people. I'm always, I'm always not at home. But then he says, the second one is called Eliezer. And that means God is my help. The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So think about this. This is interesting. He sums up his life with the difficulties on one hand, and that God is his help on the other. What a, what a beautiful way to sum up the believer's life, isn't it? The difficulties that I have in this life. I'm always exiled in some way or another in this life. I'm always out of place in this life. But God is my helper. And God rescues me from all of my troubles. Now, um, Moses, after this great encounter, and this is, this is a beautiful description of Middle Eastern courtesies and deferences. Uh, this doesn't fit well in the in the contemporary U.S. scene. You know, contemporary U.S. scene, it would have been kind of a high five. How's it been going? But here, there's a there's this whole ceremony of asking about each other's peace, and Moses being the inferior here before his his father-in-law bows to him and shows him deference, and and the ceremony of asking each other about their peace, and then going into the tent together, and so on. It's it's a beautiful ceremony going on here. And then Moses reported to his father-in-law all that the Lord had done, and the emphasis is on the fact that he had delivered Israel. Verses 8 and 9. It says, Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. That sounds like the two sons, doesn't it? All the hardship, Gershom on one hand. And all the ways that the Lord had delivered them, Eliezer, God is my help, on the other. That sums up the story not only of Moses, but of the people of God. And he, he rejoiced, Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done. And he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And then Jethro blesses the Lord who has delivered you. Where's the emphasis here? On the fact that God delivered his people out of the hand of Pharaoh, out of the hand of the Egyptians. Now, Jethro is kind of mysterious. He was a priest. And the question is, a priest of whom? A priest of what God? What God or gods did he serve? And it's kind of mysterious. We don't, don't really know. But here we, we find out that he learned. He learned who Yahweh is, the Lord. And do you remember all through the plague accounts? God kept saying things like, I am going to do this so that they might what? So that they might know who the Lord is. And then last week, we, we, we found that God was saying, I want my own people to know who I am. And here we find out that Jethro learned who the Lord is. He blessed him in verse 10. And then in verse 
11, he says what? Now I what? No. Pharaoh knew the Lord. The people of God were getting to know the Lord. And now this, this priest of Midian says, I know that the Lord is greater than all gods. Because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. It sounds like it's the gods who dealt arrogantly with the people of God. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering, sacrifices to God. Aaron came with the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So this is his confession of Yahweh. This is his profession of faith in Yahweh. He is the greatest God. And then they have this fellowship meal, which may have been the, the, the formalizing of a covenant between between Jethro and and the people of God because they eat together with all the elders and it looks like a very formal setting. But what we have here is the conviction that God is the greatest God because he delivers his people. That's what that's what Jethro learned. Now, this is what we want to happen today, isn't it? We want people to hear about Jesus, the fact that he delivers his people. And, and, and by the way, that's why I'm a Christian. I haven't exhaustively and nobody has studied all the possibilities out there of of faith systems in the world but i'm i'm fairly familiar with a number of faith systems around the world religions and philosophies and and i come to the same conclusion that jethro came to here that god the lord yahweh is the one who delivers his people and i know that because he has sent his son to do so And this is what we want people to to understand. And we want them to come to the same conviction when they hear this good news from our lips that that there is a God who doesn't simply say to you, shape up humans and I'll see if I accept you or not. But he says, I come to you. I, I come to you in the person of Jesus Christ and I redeem you. I deliver you who have faith in me. That's the gospel message. That's the the message of deliverance. And we want people to say, now I know. Now I know that the Lord is the true God. Now I know that the Lord is greater than any so-called God because he's the one who delivers his people. This is the the interlude. And then we get to the the next day. His father-in-law is still around and Moses gets up. He doesn't have a day off. And we have in verse 13 that he begins to do his job of the day, which was to judge the people. Verse 13, the next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Morning till evening. This is similar to the battle. The battle looks like it went from morning till evening. And now we have another incident going on, which is morning till evening. And they're both threats to the people of God. And Jethro, father-in-law, notices that Moses is, is all day listening to these disputes and judging and explaining what God wants to happen in these disputes. And he finds fault with Moses' administration of justice, not because there would be some, some malpractice or some miscarriage of justice, but rather because Moses was wearing himself out and he was wearing the people out as well. Moses would be sitting all day, he sat to judge, and the people would be standing all day, and, and they were all wearing themselves out. If you look at, look at verse 18, he says, You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. And by the way, this word heavy, 
goes all through this narrative. Uh, we, we learned about Pharaoh's heart being made heavy. We learned about God getting heaviness, that is, glory, by, by conquering the Egyptians. Uh, we learned that when God took the wheels off of the, the chariots of, of the charioteers, the Egyptian charioteers, they drove heavily. And here is this, this is too heavy for you. So there is this, this play on this word heavy and says, this is too heavy for you. Sometimes heavy is a good thing. It's the glory of God. Sometimes heavy is something that, that sinks down and weighs people down. He says, it's too heavy for you. And here, father-in-law being the superior, he says, son-in-law, listen to my voice. I'm going to tell you what to do. And he tells him what to do. And he tells him two things. He says, Moses, you teach the people. You dedicate yourself to teaching the people. And, and Moses was aware. He was aware. He, he was self-conscious that he had a privileged position. He knew three things. He knew that he had a special access to God that not everybody had. We learned that God spoke to Moses face to face. And, and he didn't speak to everybody that way. Moses knew that, that God had given him access to him. So he says that the people come to me to inquire of God. And he also knew that he had discernment to decide cases. He knew how he was a good judge. He could decide cases. And he also had knowledge of God's laws. This is in verse 16. I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So he knew that he was in a privileged position, access to God, discernment to judge, understanding of God's laws. Well, who else? Who else then would be better to judge the people? But what Moses' father-in-law says, yes, all true, but you can't do it alone. So you, Moses, you focus on two things. You teach the people, you teach the people God's laws, and you find people that have learned those laws and have discernment, they're trustworthy, and they're incorruptible, and you make them judges alongside of you. So um, that's what Moses did. He obeyed his father-in-law, it says here. And they set up this judicial structure. This judicial structure, though, interestingly, was also a military structure. Did you notice that? A military structure. It says you appoint captains of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, of tens. That's a military structure. So there's an overlapping structure here. The judicial structure and the military structure are the same. In other words... The two threats, the two threats that are in this, this, this section here are answered by, by a, a wise administration. It, it, it works in war and it works in times of peace and dissension among God's people. Now, once again, we come to this story and we wonder, okay, we're glad it worked out. Moses did it and it, it worked out well for them. Well, what do we do with this story? Well, a common use among among Christians, or those who have some interest anyway in, in the Old Testament, is to make Moses the model for modern leadership. So this is Moses, CEO. And here are some, some lessons for you, modern leader. Let me, I just did a quick search on Amazon. Here's some books that are available. I'm not recommending these. <laughs> leadership directions from Moses. Moses and the journey to leadership. How Millennials Can Lead Us Out of the Mess We're In, Leadership Lessons from Moses. Moses, 
Leadership lessons for here and now. Leadership principles of Prophet Moses. Life-changing principles for the modern leader. Moses, profile and effective spiritual leadership. Leadership lessons from Moses. The Bible on leadership from Moses to Matthew. Five keys to leadership through the eyes of Moses. That's commonly what people do with this section. Now, no doubt, no doubt, there are some good practical lessons on leadership to learn here. Um, but these books are, are necessarily very selective, aren't they? Was Moses always a good leader? Should we include in chapter 1, when you're going to strike down an Egyptian, look both ways to make sure no one's looking? I mean, that it, it's selective, isn't it? Or when you're very, very angry, you know, throw tablets to the ground. I mean, there, there are, there are, there's selective use of Moses, right? Another thing is these lessons that they draw from Moses, you don't need to go to the Holy Scripture for that. You can go to, to leadership books. You can go to, to motivational speakers. You can go to life coaches. You don't need Holy Writ, Holy Scripture to learn that delegation is a good thing. And the fact that there is delegation here doesn't somehow make this a holy principle here. So how, what do we do with this? Well, we do find parallels between the, what we find going on here in the Old Testament and the needs in the New Testament. And these are the, the two things that were necessary here were teaching God's people and judging God's people. Teaching God's people and judging God's people. And lo and behold, we have a structure in the New Testament that is parallel to that for teaching God's people and discerning or judging God's people. And those are called elders or bishops slash overseers. It's interesting that when Paul speaks to the bishops, elders in Ephesus or of Ephesus in chapter 12 of Acts, notice, notice the threats that these elders are supposed to deal with. Chapter 20 of Acts, verse 28 Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. These overseers, these bishops, these pastors, what is their job? to protect from external threats and to deal with internal threats as well. So yes, there are some parallels here with leadership in the Old Testament, the way it was set up, and leadership in the church. But there's a stronger parallel here, and it's between Moses and not so much the CEOs or the pastors or the elders, but between Moses and Jesus Christ. Um, and the parallel we find in, in Acts chapter 7, remember when Stephen, Stephen was one of the original, we call them deacons, servants, and he was accused by the Jews of, of distorting, and speaking against the law and so on, and he stood up to defend himself. And, and he said this, uh, he said, Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. 
This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Now, there's a deep irony about this text where they're waiting for Moses' judgment all day. And what's the irony? How did Moses start his career back in Egypt trying to trying to deliver the uh, the Israelites? What did they say to him? Who do you think you are? Who made you a ruler and judge over us? And here they are standing before him all day long so that he might be their ruler and judge. What had happened? God had taken this one who was rejected by the people, the one whom they to whom they said, who made you a ruler and judge over us? And they rejected him. God made him ruler and judge. And here Stephen makes the connection and he says, but Moses said, Moses said, God will raise up for you a prophet like me. And then we keep on reading and we find out that when he came, he also, he also was rejected by God's people. Which of the prophets, verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. This is the connection. Moses, whom they rejected, God made him ruler and judge. And that points to the fact that the same thing happened to the prophet greater than Moses. That when he came, he was rejected. And basically they said, who do you think you And they rejected him. But what happened? God made him ruler and judge of the people. So let's try to put these three stories together with their connections to Jesus. If Jesus conquered over all his and our enemies by dying and rising again, if God made him ruler and judge, if we confess him, as the one God who redeems, then we demonstrate our faith by rallying around him, by marching under his banner, by submitting ourselves to his explicit commands, and by proclaiming his deliverance to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Our God, we read these stories from the Old Testament, and sometimes they feel very distant from our lives. But we thank you that all of your promises, all of the types and symbols and stories that we find in in your ancient text, that they were all summed up and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the one who conquered all his and our enemies, not by killing, but by dying and rising again, the one who is the true God who delivers your people, from all of our sins, from death, from hell, from destruction, and the one who is our banner, under whom we might unite, the one who was rejected and was made by you through the resurrection to be ruler and judge. And so we pray, O God, as we consider Jesus in the light of of these incidents in the life of Moses and your people of old, we pray, O God, that you would enable us to Leave this place marching under the banner of Jesus, submitting to his explicit commands and declaring to the nations that there is one God who delivers his people and he delivered by 
dying and rising again. We pray this in his name. Amen.